0: making space a podcast about the unique ways that theme parks tell stories in this episode we'll take what we've learned to the park My name is Ian K. In the last episode, I introduced the most unique way that theme parks tell stories, which is called triple perspective storytelling. That is when a theme park tells three different stories from three different narrative perspectives, all at the same time, in the same place, to the same audience. To demonstrate how it works, we analyzed the three stories that The Haunted Mansion tells. In the third person story, The ghosts try to persuade us to die ASAP, so that we can move in and fill the mansion's one-thousandth vacancy. In the second-person story, the more comfortable the ghosts get with us, the closer they get to us, until at last they follow us home. Ah, Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha. The first-person story, like all first-person stories, is about what we were expecting from the ride and whether it met our expectations. This is not a revolutionary insight. Everyone who's ever been on the ride already knows these stories. They just don't know that they know them. The confusion stems from the fact that where most art forms keep their stories confined to a stage or a screen or a page or a canvas, the theme park surrounds us with its stories. As a result, we don't register them as works of fiction. We register them as personal experiences, and we aren't used to analyzing our own experiences as if they were stories. Until now. In this episode, we are going to put words to those experiences. We're going to learn how to analyze rides just as seriously as we analyze movies and books and comics. We're going to see how triple perspective storytelling works from the audience's perspective. To do that, we'll analyze another classic ride, Splash Mountain, because it tells three big, broad stories that are easy to understand. Except, instead of just announcing what those stories are, like I did with the Haunted Mansion in the last episode, we're going to go through the ride together, beat by beat, as if we were two nerds taking notes in a theme park. As we go, remember, we'll be looking at a familiar ride in an unfamiliar way. Its stories are designed to wash over you, literally, so don't worry if you haven't noticed them before, just ask yourself if they feel true based on what's in the ride and how you react when you're on it. You'll also notice that analyzing the stories of a ride takes a surprising amount of work. Stick with me, though, because none of it is difficult. It's just new, so it'll take a while to get used to it. Before we can do any of that, we have to tweak the way that we've been approaching stories, so let's rewind a little. Back in the first episode, I explained that every single story is made up of two components, a conflict and a plot. I put them in that order, first conflict, and then plot, because if you're a writer, that's the simplest way to design a story. The conflict functions a lot like the headline of an article or the thesis statement of an essay. It helps the writer keep the story focused, and it tells the audience what to expect. For example, this is the story of Dorothy Gale, who wants to return home to Kansas, but she's trapped in the magical land of Oz. Meanwhile, the plot functions like the body of an article or the supporting paragraphs of an essay. The plot is a reaction to the conflict. First, the conflict raises our expectations, and then the plot satisfies those expectations. For example, a tornado drops Dorothy in Oz. As she tries to find a way home, she helps her Ozian friends and defeats her Ozian enemies. In the process, she becomes more mature, which magically sends her home. The end. In short, the conflict is the setup and the plot is the payoff. That's why I usually start with the conflict and end with the plot. It's just the clearest way to describe a story. The problem is, that's how the storyteller sees the story, but it's not how we in the audience experience it. Stories don't start by announcing their conflicts. There are exceptions, but not many. I mean, there's snakes on a plane, but that's the whole joke. The studio came up with a dumb conflict and then just blurted it into the title. No one does that, so it went viral. Now, from the audience's perspective, most stories start with the plot. Not the whole plot, mind you, just an appetizer. Just enough to get us familiar with the status quo so that when the conflict is announced, we care about it. For example, let's return to The Wizard of Oz. First, the plot sets the stage. We meet Dorothy, and we get a sense of her home life and why she loves it, but also why she's having a hard time there. We meet the Kansan characters, many of whom have counterparts in Oz. We watch the Twister lift Dorothy's house and drop it in Oz. We explore Munchkin City and meet some Ozian characters, except for the one who Dorothy accidentally squished, and we listen to a song that manages to find, like, 80 words that rhyme with switch. We learn that the villain, the Wicked Witch of the West, is gunning for Dorothy, and we learn that Dorothy has inherited magical shoes. All of that happens, and then, 31 minutes into the story, we finally learn what the conflict is. By the time Dorothy says... I'd give anything to get out of Oz altogether, but which is the way back to Kansas? I can't go the way I came. We're rooting for her. We care about her objective, we understand the stakes, and we're concerned about the antagonism she'll face far more than we would have been if we just skipped straight to the 31st minute of the film. In short, the storyteller designs the story by starting with the conflict and ending with the plot, but the audience starts with the plot and then learns the conflict. Simple enough, right? Except we're not analyzing a simple story, we're analyzing a ride, which tells three different stories from three different perspectives, and the storytellers weaved them together to be told in the same place at the same time to the same audience. That means we can't even start by analyzing the plots. First, we have to unweave them to figure out which of the three stories each beat belongs to. Here's how to do that. When you're in the theme park, remember, your surroundings are not incidental. Every single inch has been designed for you. Yes, that's right, you. Which means that every single thing that you observe or experience in the theme park is part of one of the three plots. So when you notice something in the park, that is a beat. Stop and think about it. Ask yourself two questions. Who is the storyteller of this beat? And who is the protagonist of this beat? We can figure out who the storyteller is by asking, who made this happen? We can figure out who the protagonist is by asking, who did this happen to? These questions only have two possible answers. Either it's the theme park, specifically its designers or staff or characters, or it's us, the people visiting the theme park. To demonstrate, let's start analyzing Splash Mountain. First and foremost, we walk up to the ride. Who did that? The theme park or us? It's us, of course. We decide to walk towards Splash Mountain, so for this particular beat, we are the storytellers. Now, who does walking towards Splash Mountain happen to? The theme park or us? Again, obviously, it's us. We're the ones walking. For this particular beat, we are the protagonists. Once we've identified the storyteller and the protagonist of a beat, we can figure out which of the three stories it belongs to. A beat is part of the third person story if the theme park is both the storyteller and the protagonist, because that means the theme park is telling a story about one of its own characters. A beat is part of the second person story if the theme park is the storyteller and we are the protagonists, because that means the theme park is telling a story about us. A beat is part of the first-person story if we are both the storytellers and the protagonists, because that means we're telling a story about ourselves. Last but not least, if we are the storytellers and the theme park is the protagonist, then... well, then we've found a very polite employee and we should probably let them get back to work. So let's return to the beat where we walk up to Splash Mountain. We are both the storytellers and the protagonists, right? That means that we can catalog this beat as part of the first-person story. Let's keep going. We've walked over to the ride. What's the first thing we notice? Well, it's probably the big drop. We can't miss it. It's the main sight line. Who put that there, the theme park or us? The theme park. Its designers made the big drop, and they made sure that it's the first thing we see. Who are they displaying the big drop to, the theme park or us? Us. That sightline is there to help us understand what we can expect from the ride, which in turn helps us decide whether or not we want to go on it. So in this beat, the theme park is the storyteller, and we are the protagonists, which means that it's part of the second person's story. Now let's try something trickier. The theming. After all, the area isn't just a bare-bones flume ride. It's designed to have old-timey sets and an exotic landscape. Who made it look that way, the theme park or us? The theme park. Its designers fabricated every single inch of this fictional location. Here's the hard question. Who is the theming intended for? The theme park or us? Well, it's both. The theme park's characters are the protagonists because this is their world. The landscape influenced their culture, and their culture produced its own architecture and infrastructure and background music and so on. While I'm sure they don't mind visitors like us using their bridges and fences and lanterns, the reason they built them was for their own use. That said, we are also the protagonists of this beat because the theme park uses its theming to entice us into the story. The storytellers don't have to say, once upon a time in a far-off land, because our surroundings already convey that we're visiting a foreign land during a foreign era. So, when we consider the theming as a whole... The theme park is both the storyteller and the protagonist, which makes it part of the third-person story. That said, since we're also the protagonists, it means the theming is also part of the second-person story. Now let's consider an even trickier beat. Before we enter the queue, there's a gift shop. And that gift shop happens to be Br'er Rabbit's home in the Briar Patch. Who's responsible for this beat, the theme park or us? It's both. The theme park is the storyteller, because its designers made the store, its staff operates it, and one of its characters lives inside of it, but we are also the storytellers because we decide whether or not we want to visit the store before getting in line, if at all. Who does this beat happen to, the theme park or us? Again, it's both. The theme park is the protagonist because one of its characters lives inside of it, but we are also the protagonists because the shop is designed to sell us merchandise. So this beat is part of all three of the stories. And that is how to unweave the plots of a ride. As you can see, this process requires some critical thinking, but with a little practice, trust me, it becomes second nature. You may have also noticed that this process involves keeping track of a lot of information. Does this mean that you have to be a nerd who's taking notes in a theme park? Of course not, that's my job. But if you tried it, if you documented it, every single thing that you observed or experienced in or around Splash Mountain into three separate lists, well, it would be long. Really, really long. It took me 16 pages to fully unweave the plots. You can read my analysis at makingspacepodcast.com, but it's cool if you don't want to because, well, it's 16 pages long. That means we have to simplify Fortunately, a close look will reveal that some beats are more important than others. For example, the first time we see Br'er Rabbit, he's outside his home, expositing that he wants to go on an adventure. This beat introduces us to not only the protagonist, but also his objective. It must be in the ride, or else the story wouldn't make any sense. In the next beat, however, we pass Br'er Porcupine, who frets that Br'er Rabbit's adventures will only bring him trouble. Don't get me wrong, Br'er Porcupine is cute, and he's got a cute little drum and a cute nasally voice, but this is his only appearance, and his commentary is banal, he doesn't really contribute anything. If he wasn't in the ride, it wouldn't hurt the story, so this is the sort of beat that we would weed out of our analysis. Don't be too quick to toss out inessential beats, though. Sometimes they can combine to form a larger essential beat. For example, there are a million beats where Br'er's fox and bear are recovering from the tricks that Br'er Rabbit plays on them. Br'er Bear is caught in a rope, Br'er Bear is standing on Br'er Fox's shoulders, Br'er Bear has a beehive on his nose, and so on. Do we need them all to understand the story? No, but we can simplify them into a general beat along the lines of Br'er Rabbit outsmarts Br'er's fox and bear. By weeding the beats, I reduced my full analysis, which, again, can be found at makingspacepodcast.com, from 16 pages down to 3 pages. Once the plots are reduced to their barest essentials, then we can deduce the conflicts. All we have to do is search through them and identify the protagonist, their objective, and their antagonism. So now, let's take a look at each individual plot. We'll start with the third person, then second, then first. Here are the big, important beats of the third-person plot. It's going to be real easy to find the protagonist, their objective, and their antagonism in this one. The plot begins with the exposition that Br'er Rabbit is leaving home in search of adventure. Along the way, he encounters and outsmarts Br'er's fox and bear. The plot culminates when Br'er Rabbit gets overconfident, which allows Br'er Fox to capture him. At the top of the mountain, Br'er Fox tries to decide how to kill Br'er Rabbit. The plot resolves when Br'er Rabbit tricks Br'er Fox into throwing him down into the briar patch where he lives. Br'er Rabbit celebrates in the safety of his home, leaving Br'er's fox and bear unable to find him amid the thorns. The end. Pretty straightforward, right? The protagonist is Br'er Rabbit. His objective is to have an adventure, experiencing life outside the safety of his own home. His antagonists are Br'er's fox and bear, who want to eat him. Now let's move on to the next story. This is where our hard work will really pay off. Since we're analyzing a second-person story, we already know that we are the protagonists, so now all we have to deduce is our objective and our antagonism. With that in mind, here are the big important beats of the second-person plot. It begins outside the ride, before we even get in line, when we see the big drop. In Florida, it takes almost a full minute from the time we first see the drop till we reach the entrance of the queue the front of the ride might as well be a billboard that reads, Hey, this is a thrill ride. Hop aboard and you'll be rewarded with this drop. That is, you'll be rewarded as much as anyone can by being dropped off of a mountain. The ride does live up to its promise. We do plunge down the falls, but not at first. Instead of the big drop, we get anticlimactic lift hills and a treacly sing-along. How do you do? Mighty pleasant greeting, how do you do? Say when you're meeting, how do you do? With everyone repeating, pretty good, now give us the drop. Pretty good. Now seriously, give us the drop already. By this point, it's clear that the big drop is our objective. Now we just have to figure out who our antagonist is, so let's continue. The plot culminates when we start observing the third person story. Sure, we get a few little drops just to keep us on our toes, but for the most part, we're too focused on Br'er Rabbit's adventures to think about the big drop. The plot starts to resolve as Br'er Fox captures Br'er Rabbit, and we follow them up the mountain for the big drop. Finally, we're getting it! But it's a slow climb. There's not a lot to observe. The third-person story gets us thinking about being skinned and roasted and hung, and a pair of vultures talk directly to us, implying that we're going to die. This took a dark turn. At the beginning, the big drop is the reason we get on the ride, yet now, just before we reach it, we're supposed to fear it. Why? We're innocent bystanders. Bear Fox doesn't want to hurt us, so who is throwing us off of this mountain? Who is our antagonist? Well, the ride is. In the beginning, it offered us the big drop, then it toyed with our expectations until we didn't want what it was offering, then it gave it to us anyway. So, in the second-person conflict, we are the protagonist, our objective is to enjoy the big drop, and our antagonist is the ride itself, which doesn't seem to want us to enjoy the big drop. As for the first-person story, well, it's impossible to analyze because every single one of us has a different one, and we never have the same one twice. Here's the most specific way to describe the first-person story of any given ride. The conflict is that you have expectations that motivate you to ride it, whatever those may be, but those expectations may or may not be met. The plot is that you decide to go on the ride for whatever reason. You react to the sets, characters, stories, and experiences. You decide whether the ride met your expectations. The end. That said, if there are first-person beats that are actually built into the plot, it gives us a clearer idea of how we were intended to experience the ride. In Splash Mountain, there are two prominently featured first-person beats that affirm that the ride is kind of a bully. Beat number one. At the top of the big drop, our log doesn't immediately zip down the slope. No, it lingers there, letting us baste in the anticipation of the height the briars, the water, and our own regret. A hundred percent of the story's focus is on how we react to the big drop. And how does the ride treat us in this, our bleakest moment? By taking a picture of us and displaying it in public. Beat number two. After the big drop, our log brings us out into Frontierland, giving us a moment to recover before we go back inside. On the one hand, it's nice that there's a timeout, because even the people who like the big drop need a moment to recoup. On the other hand, this puts our reactions on display to the public. There's a bridge out in Frontierland, I call it the Gloating Bridge, where passersby can ogle our reactions. It's an entire architectural feature that's designed to let other people literally look down on us while we're vulnerable. Like it or not, that's what's in the ride. It's the truth. It's actual. The second-person story is designed to be unsatisfactual. So what? Does that ruin the ride? Of course not. Splash Mountain is great, and there are many, many, many reasons to love it. The sets are gorgeous. The character design and animation is masterful. The music is catchy, getting wet on a hot day is refreshing, and the drop itself is thrilling. The ride cleverly adapts Song of the South by preserving the cartoons while discarding the most problematic aspects of the film. It also brings black folklore into a park full of often problematic white folklore. But the next time you're in the Magic Kingdom, go stand on the gloating bridge. Count how many of the riders are unmistakably unhappy, even though they've just been through the climax of one of the most popular rides in the world. Or... Whenever you go on the ride, count the number of times there's a kid who's still crying in the zippity doo scene, despite the fact that it, one, is jaw-droppingly spectacular, and two, takes place several minutes after the big drop. There are a lot of unhappy riders. They're a consistent, sizable, vocal minority. We can't blame it on the fact that the thrills are too intense or that we get too wet, You won't count that many frowns coming off of Space Mountain or the Timber Mountain log ride at Knott's Berry Farm. No, the problem is that the second person's story is designed to literally antagonize us. First, the ride gets us excited, and then it punishes us for being excited. At best, that's a cruel way to treat an audience, and at worst, it's narrative abuse. So no, it doesn't ruin the ride, but it doesn't help. And the tragedy is... It isn't necessary. There are plenty of ways to redesign the second person story so that it appeals to the entirety of its audience without actually changing what people like about the ride. But we can't start solving this problem, we can't even diagnose this problem, until we understand the unique ways that theme parks tell stories. Imagine if we, you and I, right now, knowing what we know, were designing Splash Mountain. Now imagine if one of our collaborators walked in and pitched us that second person's story. The conflict is that we want to enjoy the big drop, but the ride doesn't want us to enjoy it, they say. The plot is that we're excited for the big drop, and then the ride teases us until we don't want it as much, and then it gives it to us anyway. The end. It would be so easy for us to reply, wait a minute. The theme of that story is be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Well, that may be fun in an episode of The Twilight Zone, and it does mirror Br'er Rabbit's hubris, will our audience enjoy experiencing it firsthand? Even if they do, does it belong in a park whose theme is reassurance? A little knowledge goes a long way. That's why it's crucial to understand how triple-perspective storytelling works. It shapes the way that generations of audience members will experience the attraction, and it costs next to nothing to design. If you're committing money, real estate, and talent to create an attraction, if you're giving the audience a beautiful dark ride, a 50-foot drop, a river-level tour of Frontierland, and the glory of the zippity doo scene, there's no reason why anyone should leave the ride unhappy. Now that we've analyzed Splash Mountain, beat by beat, and story by story, we're left with the question, What in God's name are you talking about, Ian? This is also complicated. Usually I ride the ride, eat the churro, buy the ugly hat, and go home. But now you've got me unweaving plots and weeding beats. Is this highfalutin academic witch doctory? Because it sounds like highfalutin academic doctory. To that I say, fair point. Triple perspective storytelling is ornate. When you tell three different stories from three different perspectives in the same place at the same time to the same audience, there's bound to be a lot of moving parts. But you know what else has a lot of moving parts? Theme parks. When I was researching Splash Mountain, I went on the ride, and there was a little girl and her mom sitting in the row behind me. At first, this girl was excited. Hesitant, but excited. But every time the ride teased us, she lost a little bit of courage. By the time we reached the big drop, she was inconsolable. And after the big drop, she was inconsolably inconsolable. Her mom tried to snap her out of it by asking, Did you like it? The girl whimpered, Not very much, but I liked the aminals. In one sentence, this frightened child captured the ride's triple perspective storytelling. There's a story about aminals, a story about the ride teasing us, and a story about how this girl prefers the former to the latter. It takes a lot of effort for the ride to tell those stories, and it takes a while for me to describe them, But even a child, who literally used the word aminals, understood them. For better or worse, triple-perspective storytelling is the language that theme parks speak. If you want to understand how the art form works, then you've got to become fluent in it. Fortunately, it's not hard. Sure, it takes a moment to unweave the plots, identifying and cataloging and weeding its beats, and then deducing the conflicts, but anyone who's paying attention can do it. So please, pay attention. There are stories everywhere, if you're willing to find them. Alright, lecture over. Now, let's have a little fun. In the last episode, I gave you a prompt to help you think creatively about theme park design. You all really impressed me. There were a good number of responses, some interesting choices, and thoughtful explanations. This is a young show, so it's cool to already have an audience who likes this weird nonsense as much as I do. So now I'd like to introduce friend of the show, Lindsay Olson. Together, we're going to discuss some of the responses. Lindsay, welcome to Making Space.
1: Thank you for having me, and I am super excited to be a guest on here. I've been really enjoying your podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So uh, let's let's get into this this bad boy, yeah. this, this prompt of ours. So as a reminder uh, for... Our listeners, uh, the prompt was to remove, restore, and redesign three different rides. Remove one ride that you dislike, restore one ride that was either closed or changed, and redesign one ride that doesn't quite do it for you. Shall we, shall we, uh, Lindsay, do you, do you want to share yours?
1: Sure. So for Demolish, um rama and Animal Kingdom... Um, I almost admire the backstory woven into Dinoland, but the average guest doesn't pick up on those stories, Um, nor does knowing the stories really make the land, and especially this portion of the land, any more enjoyable. And no, knowing it's supposed to be cheesy doesn't make it any better. Um, Plus, I'm super against carnival games at a Disney park.
0: (laughs) Um, that's, 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 dino is such a problem child, isn't it? Because like, it, by, by far, and we'll we'll discuss the, the statistics um, of what everyone sort of responded in a moment, but, but, uh, removing Dino-Rama was a really popular option. One of the most popular options.
1: That kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting that to be such a popular response, but it makes sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. The theme park geek's especially on Tumblr, seem to be, like, weirdly into Dino-Rama. So I do always kind of approach it with kid gloves. Um, and also the, the the great theme park designer, Joe Rohde, um, has dedicated a lot of apologism uh, towards explaining why he loves Dino-Rama. And uh, so it's hard for me to be too sour about the area. Uh, and, and, and I do think that, like, part of the problem of Dino Land USA in general is that they've they've chosen the least interesting moment in the story to make into a land. Um, right. Like like in the, over the Dino Institute, they've got Countdown to Extinction, the you know, the dinosaur ride um, where they've got, you know, a time machine and they have brought dinosaurs back to the present day. And uh, which means that like, you know, and, and, and they're also like notoriously poorly managed over in the Dino Institute, which means that like any day now, this town is going to be overrun with dinosaurs like they're absolutely going to escape from there you cannot convince me that the dino institute knows how to handle dinosaurs so like yeah i don't know think how cool like dino rama that that cheesy kind of you know terrible tacky space would be if there were just huge like like if it was partly like trampled if there were just footprints where you know the triceratops spin used to be i think that would uh... be uh marvelously interesting what, what, what would there be rides anymore? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe that's why this idea doesn't work, but, uh, I don't know. I, it does feel like a land about, uh, hubris about, you know, them exploiting these extinct animals. And, uh, now the extinct animals have come to, you know, get their, their revenge. Like, Oh, if you like us so much, well, here we are. And also primeval world is, is my guiltiest of guilty theme park pleasures. I, I, uh, I, I do secretly kind of like it a lot.
1: Uh, Sometimes you just want to spin around, go on some sharp turns.
0: <laughs> yeah, have a really, like, uncomfortable physical experience and and, and have a bunch of, like... Like, like...
1: Direct, indirect sunlight, too. <laughs> that whole <laughs> land. I think that's another thing that I hate about that whole <laughs> land is just no shade.
0: I think we're giving it plenty of shade right now. Um, also, you could see cover under that one dinosaur that has lighting fixtures that look like nipples.
1: I'm never going to be able to unsee that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: uh, and the other thing that I really, like, admire, uh, there are a few things I admire about Primeval World, but but one of them is that, like, the the it's got a whole bunch of, like, jokes, quote-unquote, about the extinction event, and, like, it manages to handle the subject matter so crassly that, like, I do think it's too soon for them to be joking about the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago just one of them being like this x stinks like a lot of organisms lost their lives dino-rama that's that's not cool man
1: uh um
0: so so uh lindsay what is your uh uh restore let's do restore
1: so restore my choice was um journey into imagination which i thought would probably be a common answer to this prompt um i never went on the original um but based on the footage i've seen it's pretty enchanting um but mostly i admire it for its uh placement in future worlds um its former existence a declaration that imagination and art are as integral to human progress as technology um and The current version just does not capture that. And I also just really wish I could have visited Epcot back in its heyday. So this is kind of me. Um, Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. And and yes, you're right. In fact, this was the most common answer to the prompt overwhelmingly a third of all of our responses uh, uh, opted to use their restore for journey into imagination the original journey into imagination replace uh, eric idle uh, have have dreamfinder reclaim his throne and yeah i i think you said it uh, pretty beautifully the the ride did feel like I hesitate to say the soul of epcot but like it was kind of the only like properly all ages ride attraction anything that they had in the park everything else was was you know not exactly phrased all ages uh, and and that was very much a huge inspiration to all the young nerds uh, which i'm sure you would have been had you been lucky enough to be there when it was opened uh it is really very heartbreaking what a jerk they've turned figment into in these in this current version yeah, that's that's a good choice. That's that's a solid choice. All right, uh your redesign, please.
1: All right, redesign um was the submarines in Disneyland. So, very few rides invoke such <laughs> hatred in me as the Finding name of Submarine Voyage. The submarines are just lazy and with the exception of the original like dive and the beautiful view of the underwater world and to seeing actual like physical plants. The ride is completely passive and unimmersive. The submarines themselves are a pretty neat part of Tomorrowland that adds an interesting kinetic energy and have a lot of history behind them. And deep sea life is incredibly fascinating and beautiful and futuristic. Um, a ride with practical effects and physical sets exploring the alien world of the deep would be just so much more interesting and fitting in with Tomorrowland's theme. Um, you know whatever that might be right now if anyone actually knows
0: uh yeah that's that's a that's a beautiful choice i think i i love submarine rides and you know the nemo ride is pretty shrill and uh but i always drag my loved ones it's onto it because it's ride. a submarine ride how could you not love it but yeah like like i've i've often said if i were to redesign the submarine ride if they give me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted with it, it would be the most unforgivably boring ride. It would just be like like, like atmospheric light coming through like kelp and piano music and, you know, maybe some fish, but not necessary, and that's it. You just sit there for a while and watch like bubbles and light, and uh, then you get out and buy a churro.
1: I, I would ride the hell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's I'm also not the most common over so...
0: Me neither, of course, uh, but I do think that there are a lot of ways to redesign the ride uh, so that it appeals to the broadest possible audience, um, and I think it deserves it because it's, it's you know, a submarine ride. It's it's really unique, and it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, those are some good choices, Lindsay. Well done. Not too shabby. All right, shall we do mine? Yes. So remove my my arch nemesis of a ride, Toy Story Midway Mania. Just every single aspect of that ride gets under my skin. Uh, it's aiming guns at lovable characters and competition for the sake of competition and getting insulted by a witless potato. I could I could really froth at the mouth about that ride forever. It just it just does not do it for me, man.
1: Yeah, fair enough. yeah, That's I don't think at. I have such an intense hatred for it, but it doesn't really do anything for me. That's fair. I'm going on a ride to essentially play an over glorified video game is not how I want to spend like an hour of time in a theme park because you're going to probably have to be waiting an hour in line to write it. So,
0: yeah, there is literally an app version of it. You could literally play it on your phone instead of, but, but, yeah, but, but the, what, what, hmm, there's so many things. Like, I'm going to try really not to because this could be a few episodes, but like, like the, the, <laughs> the physical experience of like trying to to aim and play a Wii game and 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 then it spins you like is so and and you're wearing the 3d glasses so you're already like a little off your equilibrium and and it's like black lit so the lighting's kind of weird and you're staring at a screen so the lighting's even weirder and then it spins you it just teacups you proper it's so like unpleasant just everything about this ah I really don't like that rush right? I've probably
1: only been on it twice. It's one of those ones that I'm always like, maybe I'll think I'll go. And then I see the hour wait. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not worth it.
0: Right. All right. So I would, uh, I would restore the country bear jamboree because it's uh, a beautiful, strange show. Um, and and the original wor- version I think works because of its pacing and its tone and its character design. Right, it's an increasingly uh, strange and grotesque series of bears that get revealed that sing strange and interesting songs. Um, but unfortunately, a few years ago, um, they they cut the show's length basically in half um, and gave the characters like really really distracting cost- new costumes. So like like the pacing is just just ruined. The tone is weird, but in like a schizophrenic way, and not in a like like befuddled older relative way. And yeah, and the, and the character design is is completely undercut because like the the funniest looking character you've ever seen. Now they've just put like a mop on his head, and it doesn't even look like the rest of his fur. It just looks like he has a mop on his head. And like Can you you get that off him, please. And and yeah, I'm I'm just I'm. I'm annoyed that the show doesn't exist in proper form and I'm terrified that this will be used as an excuse for, 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 you know, the suits to be like, Oh, well, people don't seem to like it very much. I guess we better tear it out and put in a Moana meet and greet or a, you know, the, 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 the worst themed, anything we could stick in there. Like I I just, Oh, I'm so worried about country. Yeah.
1: I think that's a, that's a valid concern, especially after Disneyland lost its, Country Bay Jamboree. That was like one of the first attractions at Disneyland that I was old enough to get upset about them removing.
0: Oh. Well, and uh last but not least, uh for my redesign, I'm I'm leaving Disney now, heading over to Universal Studios, I would redesign E.T. Adventure because the 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 first half of the ride is is genuinely one of my favorite rides in the world. Uh it it captures the tone of the mo the many tones of the movie, which is no small feat. E.T. is a really nuanced, interestingly toned movie. Um, and it, you know, lets us ride bicycles and escape from a horde of men in black, and we're going through the forest, and, you know, should we really be out here? And, you know, of course, then we climactically fly, and then we have the big reveal over the the, the valley and the, the city beneath it, and it's just enchanting. It is just jaw droppingly beautiful. And then the second half of the ride may be one of my least favorite rides because we visit E.T.'s planet and it's like if Small World was full of characters who looked even more unsettling than E.T. And, 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 and also the ride like just forgets about the flying bicycles like it forgets that the whole point of the ride is to be like drawing our attention down, you know, beneath us and it just basically becomes like a regular dark ride and so yeah, it loses the gimmick and it becomes unsettling and weird and irrelevant to like what makes the movie awesome. Um so yeah, I would I would redesign the ride to be truer to that first half hmm. and the movie that it's based on. Nice.
1: Hey, so that's one I have not um have not Gotten a chance to ride because I haven't really been to Universal that much. Oh no. It's
0: so worth it. So so worth it.
1: Were there any others that popped out to you as interesting?
0: I did like uh, a few people um wanted to redesign the wonders of the abandoned wonders of life pavilion in Epcot's future world, uh to make it, you know, a proper large scale dark ride uh going through the human body. But yeah, it was was kinda quaint to see a little bit of consensus on that. Um, I liked. <laughs> there was one who said remove Star Wars Land, which that
1: does not was, exist. Uh, that's great. I, I, I,
0: yeah, I thought that took uh, a little bit of, a uh, little, quite a bit of moxie, uh, since, since at the time of this recording, it's not open yet. Um, to be fair, they did say put it in California Adventure. Um, and and their reasoning was that you know, uh a single specific franchise getting its own land in Disneyland is, is strange. It doesn't quite work there. Yeah. I don't disagree. I don't, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, I did like the moxie of just like, like remove the entirety of the brand new flagship land. Like, whoa, <laughs> big spender. That's fun. And I was, I was also surprised at uh there, there seemed to be a lot of people who wanted to remove. It's tough to be a bug.
1: I can see it because this ride just... The show just traumatizes people. <laughs> kids will come up... So when I worked at Festival of the Lion King, sometimes kids would start crying as their parents would try to take them in line. And their parent would just be, tell them it's not like the bug show, please. Like, it's not like the bug show. It's like, yeah, there's there's nothing that's going to pop out. There, nothing's going to pop out at you. There are no bugs. It's all live performers. It's not like the bug show. are
0: they, they aren't literally uh, stabbed uh, as part of the show. So <laughs> Sometimes the like, murder goes a yeah, little too far. Yeah, it's less about
1: like questions of theming. I think for people in this one, so much as it is the fact that it just freaks people out.
0: That's fair. I I, I think that I think that is a beautifully, beautifully designed show. I think it's really well executed, except for the part where they literally stab you uh with, with wasp stingers uh during a climactic scene. Um but but yeah I, I do I do think it's also like deeply problematic. I think that like the tone of it is uh just a flat out guilt trip of like we're 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 pretty much like yeah, we're bugs and we're great and if you don't like us, you should. What do you think about that? And like, no, I still I'm still pretty grossed out by you i mean you're cute because you're pixar bugs but like no yeah i don't know that you've like convinced me of anything and yeah like like I, th- I i think that that's one of those shows that like with a solid rewrite and no stabbing the audience it would be really good
1: who doesn't like to be stabbed on their vacation <laughs> yeah um, so one of the responses that sticks out in my mind is our mutual friend's Lily response, which is uh, Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland. I'm kind of surprised that I didn't think of this one at all because it was one of the first, uh, very, the very first Disney attractions that sparked my interest in theme park design. Um, for those unfamiliar, the Mine Train was a more slow-moving railroad attraction in Frontierland that was eventually replaced by Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, but I think it offered something that Big Thunder lacks, which is a chance to really soak in the atmosphere offered by the attraction.
0: That's a really good insight. Uh, Yeah, because if you think back to, like, Walt's, you know, the original Frontierland, it was all atmospheric, slow-moving vehicles. We, We had the Pack mules, and the horse and carriage, and the Conestoga wagons, and of course the riverboat and, and canoes, which are still there. But it is kind of the one major land that doesn't have slow-moving atmospheric rides that like let you take in the the landscape. You know, in, in Fantasyland, there's the Casey Junior Circus train and the Storybook Land canal boats. In Adventureland, there's of course my beloved Jungle Cruise, uh, and in Tomorrowland. Well, it, it doesn't have the people mover anymore, but it was designed to have the people mover, and it still does have the submarines. So yeah, that's that's interesting. And without that, Frontierland is, is just kind of a, that, that beautiful Mexican restaurant uh, and a couple of stores and Thunder Mountain. And yeah, you can get that same perspective from the canoes and the riverboat, uh, but those are from water. And California's is the one frontier land that's actually in a desert, so it's a shame to not be able to get that perspective from the land.
1: I um, especially adore the music played during the Rainbow Caverns portion of the ride. I think it's just enchanting, and it's one of those things that when I listen to it, just kind of feels like undiluted Disney magic. And I imagine that between like the music and the visuals of the Rainbow Fountains and the falls, it would have that same goosebump-inducing effect that, say, the Caverns and Pirates of the Caribbean or Flying Through the Stars on Peter Pan's Flight feels like. It's just a uh, seems to be like a very unique piece lost to time that I would love to experience.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in, in a couple generations, uh, someone will be asking this prompt and uh, maybe they'll, uh, they'll be in the process of demolishing star Wars land and replacing it with a really extensive mind train through nature's wonderland. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how the pendulum swings. Lindsay, thank you so much for, for helping us out, for talking about these responses with us. Thank you for your wonderful yeah, responses.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I think you should play along with the new creative prompt for this episode. Are you ready for it? Here goes. Disney has built five different versions of the Haunted Mansion, and they placed each one in a different land. California's version is in New Orleans Square, Florida's is in Liberty Square, Tokyo's is in Fantasyland, Paris's is in Frontierland, and Hong Kong's is in Adventureland. Each version was designed differently so that it would fit into its new surroundings. Today, that power is yours. You are now President Imagineer. Congrats! Your job? Pick any attraction, and in just a few sentences, explain how you would redesign it so that it thrives in a new land. Send your response to makingspacepodcast at gmail.com, and we may read it in the next episode. The deadline is whenever I complete the next episode, so if you're listening to this and the show has a fourth episode available, I'm sorry, but better luck next time. And of course, there's one other way for you to play along. You can help me make sure that everyone appreciates the unique ways that theme parks tell stories by subscribing, rating, and or reviewing the show. You can also recommend it to family, friends, enemies, acquaintances, strangers, anyone you think might be interested. So that's it. This episode of Making Space was written, produced, and hosted by me, Ian K. My portfolio of theme park design can be seen at enkthemes.com. That's the letters E-N-K-themes.com. If you want to get in touch, I would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, concerns can be addressed to podcast at gmail.com. The script of this episode was edited by my patient and loving wife, Claire. The creative prompt was co-hosted by Lindsay Olson. You can find her blog at breachingtheberm.tumblr.com. The logo was designed by Rob Yeo, whose portfolio can be seen at robyeodesign.com. The music was composed by Alex Treese, whose tracks can be heard at alextrece.bandcamp.com. Should we explode to Music In the next episode, I'll explain why theme parks need to tell stories differently than other art forms. I hope you'll join me, and I thank you for listening.